This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in the old city of Jerusalem at Asia Torah overlooking the Temple Mount. Okay, everybody. So I guess the best way to explain uh, what we're dealing with here is a par- a parents go out of town and they... Um, they tell their kids, they tell their teenagers, no parties. Now, of course, the teenagers say, yeah, of course. And then as soon as the parents leave the house, and they, this is not a good thing to be doing right now, guys. As soon as the parents leave the house, the, uh, they start text messaging all their friends. And, uh, and then, you know, just it's like a magnet towards, you know, everyone's coming. And what they did, what this guy did was he and his best friends made a pact that his parents are coming back on a Monday. And what they're going to do is party the whole time. But starting Sunday, they're going to get together Sunday morning and they're going to fix everything that broke till the parents get back Monday night. And so they made this pact and they're going to throw big parties and it's going to be amazing. So that's exactly what they did. And they partied and partied and partied and partied and partied. And of course, there's, uh, you know, a bush has already died. I mean, they're gone for three weeks. So a bush has already died from public urination. And there's... um, and not to mention, you know, just all kinds of other things going on in uh, with linens and stuff. And the the place is just an absolute mess. People have thrown up in the powder room. You know, the the, the place is just slowly getting trashed. And and at this point, they have no idea what's going on with the house because it's Sunday. They're going to be doing the inventory. You know, so like anyone who told the boy, you know, Bobby, that you know someone threw up in the powder room on the wall, you know, the cloth wallpaper. You know, Bobby, you know, he maybe took a mental note, but his mental notes weren't lasting more than about five seconds. And so there was no inventory of everything that went wrong in that house. Now, eventually, um, what happened was his parents, they'd already been gone for three weeks, and they said to themselves, you know, we feel so bad for Bobby. Why don't we just surprise him Saturday night? Let's just go home. You know, we could probably get a flight and be there by one in the morning. We'll wake him up. We'll surprise him. Now, of course, this Saturday night was the grand finale. This was going to be the biggest party of them all. And it was the biggest party of them all. And the parents, of course, got got to the neighborhood around one, um, you know, pulled off the highway into the neighborhood and suddenly realized that there's no parking anywhere. And the, the entire neighborhood is completely parked up both sides of the street. They're like squeezing down the center of the street, you know, between cars. And, and they're like, wow, someone must have some event tonight. And, you know, the mother was kind of excited about that. And, of course, the further they went, the more people they were seeing on the streets, on the sidewalks and stuff. And eventually, her smile turned into a grimace and slowly a shake when she started realizing that the party's at their house. And, of course, they had to double park because there was certainly no parking. There was even a car on their lawn, not to mention bodies. And as they stepped over those bodies with their car still running in the center of the street... Bobby, meanwhile, was shaking, was swinging from the chandelier in the foyer, which is uh, New York for foyer, in the foyer of the of the uh, house, and with everyone cheering him on to the music of a band. And uh, and but right when everything seemed to be going fine with him swinging from the chandelier and people were coming to like take him down, it came loose and bah! Bobby lands on his back and the chandelier like just barely misses piercing him and glass everywhere and and he's looking now like this like about to go unconscious when he sees two pairs of dress shoes one with heels and he's thinking to himself who in the world wore dress shoes to my party and then he slowly looks up and sees his parents' faces And in that second, two things happen. One, full sobriety. It doesn't matter what you're on when that happens. You know, you're suddenly off it. And two is full inventory, like total recall. Total recall. Of everything that had gone wrong in that house, all of a sudden, like, came back to him on the spot. Sobriety and total recall. Sobriety and total recall. Sobriety and total recall. Welcome to Rosh Hashanah. Sobriety and total recall. That's what it's all about. And now you understand that sobriety and total recall is 
the point of the the order of the holidays. I'll explain that in a minute. I want to change the word now from sobriety to clarity. Okay? Because when you're not sober, you're probably lacking clarity. And when you're sober, you're probably clear, unless, of course, you're on fancier type of things that bring clarity. But but they, that's why I always tell people, like, everyone wants to know from me if they should smoke weed on Purim. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, not necessarily. Was, the, the point was to blur things, not clarify them. You know, and they, and many people find that cannabis causes great clarity rather than blurring. So, like, so I tell people, you know, just stick with alcohol on Purim. You know, you don't need, that's not going to get you anywhere. And, of course, then there's people who want to use harder psychedelics on porn, just because they hear costumes, they hear zany, they hear wacky, they think mushrooms. And <laughs> mushrooms are going to create a lot more clarity than any cannabis ever will. So it's just not, not for porn. Porn, just stick with alcohol. Now, the, anyway, we, so we're talking about clarity and recall. Clarity and recall. What's the obvious question? The great Kabbalists tell us that God renews the world perpetually at all times. In fact, we say it in our prayers. He's mechadish betuvoyeh, becholiyom tomid, ma'asevereshis. God renews in his goodness at all times perpetually. The ma'asevereshis, what's the ma'asevereshis? The, the act of creation. What's the act of creation? The act of creation is the ten utterances. All the let there be's. There's ten let there, well, there's nine let there be's, and there's one is the word Bereshit. Bereshit is the key one. That's Chachma. Bereshit. It's just this point of all reality, which is interestingly, the Big Bang is said to begin with a point of matter. And so that's Chachma. We're all inclusive point where everything's in that point. And so that's the word Bereshit. And all the let there be's are the, are the, the, or what cause our creation to exist. Like, for example, let there be vegetation upon the earth is what's giving rise to your table here right now. It's giving rise to the cotton shirt I'm wearing right now. If God were to stop saying that, if God stopped saying, let there be vegetation upon the earth, which we look at as like, oh, when God created the world, if you subscribe to Judaism as being true and the Bible's actually real... So then God once created vegetation. That is not the way Jews look at it, though. We look at the words, how's it going, need a table for two? Or are you, you guys came together? No, okay, great. And this is for this nice lady, and that's for that nice man. Okay, is there a chair there? Uh, no problem, we got other chairs. Uh, sit next to Ellie Mayer, maybe. Not you. Kabbalistic standards. Listen carefully. Kabbalistic ways of looking at the world are the ways that we look at the world. It's not just for Kabbalists. It's for you. You're a Jew. This is the way you look at the world. I don't care what you hold up. Like, part of being Jewish is that you look at the world Kabbalistically. No other way. You don't look at Judaism as a religion. You'll rarely ever hear me make the mistake of of, well, the other religions. Or, why? Because that infers that Judaism is a religion. I don't use that. I say religion says this. Judaism says this. It's not a religion. It's based on, it's based on realities. It's based on certain cosmic realities that took place historically, like, for example, the creation. Back to the creation. Let there be vegetation is what's creating the cotton in my shirt. If God were to stop saying that one, I mean, he says all the others, but he stops saying that one, what would immediately happen in this classroom? First of all, all the tables would be gone. All the wood paneling would be gone. This board, which is probably made of, you know, some other kind of element, would be falling on the floor because the frame would be gone. I'd be only wearing a vest because this is made by let there be animals upon the earth, which is like, I'd be saved. I'm also wearing wool pants, so I'd be in good shape. The rest of the class would probably be naked. And so this class would like instantly get really interesting. And if he also mentioned, you know, may the animals, you know, the words, let there be animals upon the earth, which is literally vivifying your body right now. Because you're part animal, for sure. You're part animal. Just, 
it's funny when you look at the animal kingdom. Once in a while, I'll be walking down the street and I'll see a cat and I'll be like, ears, eyes, nose, <laughs> legs and arms. Okay, I'm upright with mine, but, but like, geez, like, we're animals. Like, we are animals. We have a soul. We're animals with souls. Hence, language. You think I, you think I have any ability to form these sentences? Do you realize how complicated the math is crossing the room right now? And I'm not even good at math. Like I, I missed that day when they taught math. But somehow I'm able to do this, and somehow you're able to hear it, and in real time take mathematics, which goes across the room in vibrational wave patterns, hits a tympanic membrane in your head called eardrums, goes up neurological, you know, audio nerves, hits the neurons. The neurons just do the math. And they don't know English either, but because you have other thing called memory, it remembers every math you've ever heard, every English word you've ever heard. All of this is, everything is vibrational, and all of this is happening, like you're doing all this in real time, but all that's really happening is that we're inside this incredible oscillating vibration called this hologram, this holographic projection that's coming out of the mind of God, well, actually, the desire of God, the mind of God, and then the utterances of God. And that's what's creating the animal in here. Now, if God were to turn off the words, let there be vegetation, all the tables would disappear, all the cotton in the room would disappear. If he, dis if he also said, let the animal disappear, all of our bodies would disappear. And my wool would disappear. And all be left in here as souls. And souls aren't creations. So we would be in good shape. Because we're just eternal in nature. We're, that's not going anywhere. You know, like, that's the beauty of, of death, is that the one thing that inhibits your soul more than anything else is it being constantly hijacked by your thought processes. The constant theme of, stream of thinking gets in the way of things. And so the, the, what you have to look forward to in death is you will at least be, you will be finally redeemed from the hijacker called the brain. This is why certain cultures, Judaism included, is very into meditation, to get the brain to shut up so that you can be present and conscious and alive. But you'll notice meditators aren't afraid of death because every time a meditator gets back to consciousness, he is now experiencing a a type of death, which is the death of the, the constant barrage of inane things, thinking, inane thoughts coming your way at all times. And you should know that someone who's experienced brain death, I'm not talking about the clinical one, I'm talking about meditation, but someone who's actually, whose brain shuts up, are the best thinkers in the world. Check it out, go look in the high-tech world, you got to be a good thinker to be in cutting edge of high-tech, and they're all... They're all, they, they, go on, they go on meditation symposiums. There are whole, there are whole gigantic, mega high-tech companies like Google who the, they're, where meditation is part of the organization itself, including the use of, of certain compounds that are known for their psychedelic effects on the mind, which quiet the part of the mind that is the constant barrage of noise. And it increases their productivity, creativity, and uh, and and openness, which is where you got to be to be cutting edge. Is you have to have a certain gene for openness, which we all have, but it gets closed off by that judge, judging voice in your head that never stops closing you down. <coughs> Rosh Hashanah is not the first day of creation. The first day of creation, I think, is today. Because the world was created on the 25th of El. Does anyone know today's Hebrew date? Yeah, today's 26th. 26th. So yesterday was the first day of creation. The reason why we celebrate the first day of creation next Sunday night is because it's the first of Tishrei. It's the day Adam was born. It's the sixth day of creation. It's the day Adam was born, and we count the birthday of the world based on the consciousness of the first sold homo sapien. Because once you have a soul in creation, now we have something eternal, truly forever. And now that it's inside the mind of a man 
called Adam, which was really male and female. It was a, it was a hermaphroditic experience of male and female Adam. Before Eve was separated off, and they were two separate genders. They were at first together, and they were, from there, we can now count time. Before then, we don't count time, which now suddenly explains how the world could be six days old, or at least from the perspective of, of the author, which is, according to Judaism, God. So the, so the author is God. So from God's perspective, it's six days. And from Adam's birth counts now 24-hour days from Earth perspective. So God's perspective from the edge of the universe where time seriously slows down, you know, the further out you go, the more things expand, the slower time goes. Time is not an absolute, you realize. Everyone knows that. Do we know time's a relative? Time's a relative based on, on where you are. And so on our Earth, you could easily have 15 billion years go by where the edge of the universe would be six days. But as soon as Adam's born, now we've got, now we've got a perspective of time from the storyline, the narrative of humanity. And that's and so we literally are that old. We literally meaning humans with souls are that old. And you'll notice nowhere before the age of Adam do you have any complex structures on the planet. And what are we supposed to look for? You know, tools. When we go archaeological, like what are we looking for to see how old things are? So we're looking for tools, but that's not so helpful because we know primates use tools. And so that's so we need more advanced tools. Well those are hard to find. We can't really find much of that, but what we can find is complex structures. Well, there are no complex structures before Adam. Our planet doesn't have complex structures before Adam. And when I say complex structures, I mean two stories. Because birds build structures. Okay, that, That's not going to be... that We got a one-story structure that requires more or less no engineering. Not a big deal. You could easily have an older structure than 6,000 years. But to have a two-story thing that's going to require a certain level of a co cognition that's abstracting, like an, an abstraction of cognition, which comes with souls. Like, once you have a soul, you start abstracting. Your ability to abstract is, is what's unique to the soul. This is why it's so important. Sp the spirituality of a human being is so important. Because once you can abstract, well... Well, you, you better be abstracting beyond the physical because uh, if you're going to abstract only in the physical, you're going to wind up very disappointed and you wind up with what's called existential depression, which is probably the number one form. By the Jewish people, it's for sure the number one form, but even by Gentiles, there's such a thing as existential depression. Isn't that called nihilism? Is that something different? N nihilism is something different, but it's very easy to connect. Now... Clarity and recall. Here's the issue. You guys should all be asking a question. Oh, sorry. I'm still backing that up. The Kabbalists tell us that the whole world comes into existence from nothing to something, nothing to something, nothing to something at all times. It's always coming into existence. Meaning the shirt you're wearing right now is brand new. The skin you have is brand new. It's being created now. If God were to stop, where would you be? If God stopped creation, where would you be right now? You wouldn't be here. You'd disappear. Not only you'd disappear, everything would disappear. So, in other words, you're brand new right now. You're brand new right now. Now, given that you're brand new right now, what's Rosh Hashanah? Rosh Hashanah is when the year goes new. It goes brand new. Meaning everything that was said last Rosh Hashanah is now going to be hitting home plate in the next four days. And then when it hits home plate, which will be um, uh, basically Sunday afternoon, God's going to like flip the pancake or whatever. He's going to flip it totally into what's called Tavshinayim Chet, which is 5778 since Adam, counting from Adam. We're going to be hitting 5,778. Or is it 79? I missed that day too. So we're going to 5,779. Why does it feel warm in here? What's the number on the thing up there? Oh, that doesn't help. So put it on the lowest, please. And uh, yeah, there's warm air coming in. 
hand me one of those empty bottles. Just throw me a bottle. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was an amazing toss. If you're trying to hit. Clearly, don't try sports. Sorry, that. You should know that all the gentlemen in the room, like the number one gentleman in the room, is the one who hit you with the bottle. He's from Baltimore. I'm from Pittsburgh. Are people nice in Pittsburgh? Uh, Baltimore, they're, Baltimore, they're like too nice. <laughs> I'm from LA, you know. Uh, it's, like, it's like you're only nice if it's good for you. <laughs> Literally, like, that is how the society goes around. Really. Baltimore people aren't nice if you're from Pennsylvania. What's that? Baltimore people aren't nice if you're from Pennsylvania. <laughs> really? Drive into uh, Baltimore with like a Philly sticker on your car. Your window will get broken. Uh huh. So it could be. I never got to meet that part of Baltimore. <laughs> everyone I met had kippas and sitsis, and you know, the ladies were all dressed a certain way, and everyone was just a little too nice. Yeah, it depends on. Yeah. There are some it was like everyone was on glue. They could have been. And, uh, but I found in general, like the Litfish community tends towards like the most boring place on earth, where everyone's really polite. Like, for example, uh, Passaic, New Jersey. It's boring. And, uh, and then there's Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. You know, like, a, a Hasid would last like about an hour in Cleveland, Ohio. I remember I was with my, my Hasidic assistant in Cleveland, and uh, we ate dinner at these people's house, and they were very gracious, and it was wonderful, and, and uh, we left there hungry, and, um, and we were... And we're, you know, but we're cool because we're Hasid and we stay up all night anyway. And, you know, after I do all my teaching or whatever kumzits, you know, then we go out and munch, you know, at 12, 1 in the morning. You know, and so, so we said to him as we're leaving, like, by the way, after my class, you know, we'll probably be done around 9. What eatery do you suggest? They're like, like, well, there is no kosher food after 8 here. <laughs> so we both looked at each other and we both said, <laughs> I mean, they hate to quote the like Holocaust, and, you know, you know, like main theme. But you know, like we both looked at each other, like never again. We're finally on our way back on this little airplane. On the way back, and this this guy sitting behind me asks me, you know, a yeshivish guy from Flatbush. He asks me for a Devar Torah. So I'm like, okay, you know, a Devar Torah. So I'm just kind of trying not to get whiplash telling him a Devar Torah. So I, I get to the part, uh, one of the psukim was that, and he will rule over you, vehuyim shalbach. It was one of the, one of the um, curses of Eve was that she has to be ruled over by Adam. Adam will rule over her. And that's a curse of all women, is that like, is that you're not men, your husband, your husband, not men. Your husband calls the shots. Okay, that's, that's the way you do it. You do it, you'll be happy. You don't do it, you suffer. And it's not that you would really suffer. It's fun calling the shots if you're a girl. It's great, especially, you know, with feminists, like, call the shots. It's great. And your husband loves it because men hate responsibility. So if you're willing to call the shots, he's like, I'll hang out in Club Med for, you know, a couple decades while my wife does everything. And she's having fun because it's powerful. Everyone's happy, except the problem is, is that with women, respect and attraction are bound together permanently. And so that's really, you may be having a real heyday in being like super, you know, effective in your life. And he's, of course, wearing a tutu after a while. And, and, the, and you, you don't feel the respect. The respect goes, it just tanks. It might work for a while if he's learning, but not more than a year or two, three. If he's studying to be a rabbi, okay, let him finish. But, you know, if, maybe it might take five years if he wants to be a rabbi. But like, okay, let him do it. But be careful. Be careful how far you go with that kind of scenario because after a while, it's hard to have respect. I don't care how much hashkafa you have. You know the word hashkafa? Worldview, Torah world. I don't care how, how brainwashed you are by the yeshiva system to support your husband in learning. You don't go there for more than a year or two, three max. And seriously, and I, and I suggest telling the truth when you're dating about that too because... Because you don't want to wind up with a fight three years later when he thought he was going to hang out in Club Med the rest of his life. And you're like, hey, buddy, you know, like, why don't you 
bring home some bacon, Lahav deal. So, and the, uh, anyway, but, uh, but it was amazing. I, I had this crazy situation happen to me yesterday where I met, uh, this lady's trying to decide whether to leave him or not. And she sounded older in her voice, but I, you can never be sure how old a person is just speaking to them, but she wanted me to meet her husband. So I meet, I go down, I, I said, yeah, okay, I'll meet him down at the hotel. Couldn't find the guy, looked everywhere. And the only person that's, that I had not turned around yet, you know, to say, are you so-and-so, I'm not gonna say his name, are you so-and-so, was just this old man, like, like you know, this old holy man, you know, like who was up against the wall, just praying the whole time. But I finally decided, like, I've asked everybody at the entire code, I've asked like 100 men if they're that guy. So I go to this old man with a big long white beard, and, and I said to him, are you so-and-so? And he's like, yes, are you Rabbi Glazer? It's like 20 minutes later, you know, I finally find the guy. But this was, it was all whether she should leave him now because of his absolute, he's, he's, a, he's a zombie, he's the walking dead. Been learning for 50 years now. He's the walking dead. Knows a lot of Torah, but all of this is hashkafa. And you can, in hashkafa, there's hashkafa, and then there's, certain instincts that God put in creation. God put this in creation. So you can have all the worldview you want, but if your worldview is going against what God put in creation, so God's going to win that one. And I don't care which rabbi has or, which rabbi has ordained a lifestyle that has men being the woman and the woman being the man, which is very interesting that is going on here because we all know the secular culture right now. I'm not going to embellish but it is interesting that the black hat world, their whole job was to insulate the observant world from external influence, right? 200 years ago, there was the Haskalah movement, the Enlightenment, and the black hat world created an entire culture to insulate itself from the secular world. But somehow we are now in a generation where they've literally flipped the roles. Which again, it's really cool and it's very sweet and super romantic for a man to be in learning for a year or two after marriage. It's amazing. I was studying to be a rabbi, so I learned five years after. Because I had a, you know, I definitely had career goals. By the way, my career goal wasn't to be a rabbi. My career goal was to make a difference for people. But the, seemed the more I learned, the bigger difference I made. So my wife was like, keep going. You know, just keep learning. And we lived in two little rooms. <laughs> with an accordion partition between us and our kids. I mean, the first room was a table. Second room was an accordion. Per you have to understand, the house we lived in for seven years when we got married was bigger than my bedroom in L.A. The entire house was bigger than my... Sorry, my bedroom in L.A. was bigger than my entire house that I lived in for seven years. My, my wife says, well, she grew up in a big house in North Stanford. I grew up in a mansion in West L.A. with two livings. And this is, this is a, a tribute to Torah, that when the existential depression goes away because of the incredible meaning of Torah. Search and, meaning. What's that? Man's search for meaning. Exactly. I, this is like one of the first times I didn't mention the name Frankel when I said this. And when the existential depression goes away from Torah, you can have two people raised in, you know, in the upper, upper class, the top 1% of the U.S. living in, in like a tuna can. And we had four kids in one bed. We had four of our kids, two this way, two that way, little ones, you know, because we were being fruitful and multiplying. And so there, we had four little ones in one bed, with an in our bedroom with an accordion partition between us. And I have to tell you, it was the best. I mean, I, I don't live like that anymore at all, but it was definitely, I have to say, one of the best times of my life. And today's the best time of my life. I mean, today's amazing, and it's totally different, and, you know, it is, and it's, but it comes with its own, you know, I have to work harder on myself to stay as at peace as I wasn't. You can go if you want. It's fine. I was, I was just, she was feeling so bad, turning around slowly. To, um, can I teach you all something about being awkward? You know that you have awkward situations? Yeah. Like there's this elephant in the room that no one wants to talk about.
can I tell you how you get out of awkward situations just so you know this forever and just from now on try this talk about the elephant just bring it up everyone relaxes just talk about the elephant I always talk about the elephant I have a seminar company I'm running for 17 years so it turns out that I had two daughters in one seminar well that's a little awkward all these women have come in to like bear their souls and the rabbi's got two teenage daughters in there you know and like it was awkward and so the second I felt everyone being awkward about the fact that my daughters were there because like suddenly all the insanely sealed confidentiality starting to feel a little funky with Rabbi Glazer's kids in the room and so I just said my 19 year old grew up with this seminar since she's two we've waited until she's 19 to finally do it She's, this is a huge moment in her life. And my 17-year-old was born the year the seminar was created. And this is like, it's, this is really important for her right now. Meaning she needs it just because the timing is such that she needs a breakthrough. But everyone just relaxed. So if there's something awkward, just say it. Okay, back to us. God creates the world brand new, brand new, brand new, brand new. But especially Rosh Hashanah... You get a whole new scenario for your year. Like, we're about to get an entirely new scenario for the coming year. It is so new that my Kabbalistic teacher, who I go to on Thursday nights, my Kabbalistic teacher, who only sleeps two hours a day, with the exception of Thursday nights and Friday nights when he doesn't sleep at all, And he only eats enough food to keep his body alive. And he's six foot five or something. Completely out of this world. Like this guy is like not even in this realm. His head's twice my size of my head. I have a pretty big head. He's got this huge head, ETIs. And, and all he does during those 22 hours a day is either involved in meditation, Torah study, or prayer. They were make fun or whatever. That's it. I've never, in, in all the years I'm with him now, 22 years, I've never seen him eat food. Besides the, you know, you, when you make hamotzi, you have to eat a certain amount. So he eats that. It's funny watching him chew because it looks like he's gagging. Like, it's really weird watching him chew. I feel bad for his wife who baked the halas, you know, because he's like gagging on the, on the hala, hala. One sec. And he's, and by the way, he's not an exemplary Jew. The example of Judaism is to be in the world, like in commerce, in the like physical world. That's what Judaism is about. But we do have people like this. They're called Perushim. And it's important to have some Jews who are not really in it. Especially for me, because I'm like dipped in this world. I'm like, you know, I'm riding exotic mountain bikes and like fancy stereo equipment. And, you know, I love craft beer, as many of you know, and probably tired of hearing about. And, you know, I'm just like very in the world. By the way, after after being with the Rebbe tonight, then I'm going to the Schwitz to sauna and get slammed by some hairy naked man. You know, with eucalyptus leaves. You know, like I'm I'm really in the world. You know, and I promise you, my my Rebbe is not going to be having no hairy big guy whipping him with eucalyptus leaves. That's for sure. In a sauna, you know. So. So he's a perfect Rebbe for me because I got someone who's like he's he's like in outer space and I've got that tether linked to him and all the teachings I teach you are always from him. In my wife's first pregnancy, we made the grave error of being his guest for Rosh Hashanah. Now it's a new world, so you never know what's going to happen with him, you know, because it's a brand new world. There's no there's nothing predictable here, and and I mean it's so unpredictable with him. On Rosh Hashanah, because he doesn't even know who he is. He doesn't know who he is. When he comes home from shul and sees his wife in the living room, he's just like, "Who the hell are you?" You know. She's like, "I'm your wife." And he's like, "Okay, I can deal with that." Okay. And then, and then he like sees his kids, and then the guests are like, kind of like foreign objects, and and they, I mean, he's literally like that on Rosh Hashanah, completely out of out of this world. And, and then he starts making kiddish. Now, I, was, I sit on his right, because I was a very close student. I sit on his right. 
he's here. Then there was a women's table because there's a lot of people there, and they, you know, I mean, they eat together normally, but it was Russia, Jean was back. She's on a, the wife's there hosting the women's table. My wife's on her her left, so we're facing each other. It's time for Kish. We've already been there an hour. My wife's pregnant. She's got a drink. Now, had I known, I should have gone to the kitchen. I was too young and dumb. I should have gone to the kitchen made kiddish for my wife, you know, because when you're pregnant, you need a lot of fluids. It just wasn't cool. So, whatever. He starts kiddish. He starts with an explosive baruch, and thank God he remembered the word baruch. And he says the word baruch for kiddish. And he's shaking, and his head turns as red as a tomato, and it literally looks like it's going to pop off. And wine is going everywhere. By the time he was done with Baruch, I don't think there was more than a little thin layer of wine at the bottom of the cup. I mean, wine was everywhere. And he finishes Baruch, but here is what's going on next. Is he opens his eyes and realizes he doesn't know what the next word is. How could he? Now, I know Jews who are... I know Reconstructionist Jews who, like, have married their house pet, and they know what comes after the word Baruch. And here is this great Torah scholar who, like, literally, for at the, if you put a gun to his head, he didn't know what that atah was the next word. Like, he didn't know. And so he motions to his son to bring a sitter off the wall, off his, you know, bookshelf on the wall, and he brings the sitter. They refill the wine. He gets to Atah. He points to Atah. You know, and and the Rebbe goes into Atah. And it was more intense than Baruch. And those who've been in my class on Baruch and Atah, and you know what I'm talking about. Like Atah is the highest. Atah is the highest of all the words. Of all the things you call God, Hashem, Elokeinu, Shakai, Tzvakois, you know, Elokai. All those words don't hold a candle to the word Atah. So, I mean, at this point, like, there, there was, by the time he was done with Atah, there was nothing left again in the cup. And anyway, this went on and on and on and on. And I'm, like, staring at my wife, and we're just, like, she's, like, keeling over. And I'm just, like, <sighs> and I keep shaking my head. They're going, like, never again. <laughs> like, ooh, how did we make this error, <laughs> this terrible error? Anyway. He finally finished his kiddush. The next day I was in shul, and I wanted to achieve what he had achieved. And uh, so I really focused on that, and I had some really big breakthroughs. So I suggest to all of you in Rosh Hashanah, you know, go there and get that space. Like, just push for it. Push for that, that place where it's that new. And do not say, Bochatah. And especially because the word atah doesn't even begin with a chaf. It begins with an olive. It's baruch. Ata, not Baruch Ata. It's not Chata. It's Baruch Ata. But I suggest to all of you that when you get in there Rosh Hashanah day and you get to the prayer book and it's like long, really long, I suggest, especially when you get to the silent prayer, start with everybody. Start your Baruch with everybody. Baruch. But I suggest you stay on Baruch and Ata for the first several minutes. I mean, you can go ahead. I mean, you can't make that big a pause, but spend a few minutes just getting through Hashem spend, spend two minutes there. Just on the exhales, deep inhales, long exhales, and ignore what's going on in, in the room. Just ignore it. I mean, they may all be going down to lunch and Ezra's still standing there, which would be perfect. You don't need to eat. There's shuls in Jerusalem that for years didn't go to lunch. They literally didn't go to lunch. They missed lunch on Rosh Hashanah. Since then, people complained and they fixed it. So now they eat lunch. Um, they, they get home 10 minutes before sundown to make kiddush and wash on bread. And they only go back to the shul for the evening service after the whole meal. So they go back like later that night. Or maybe they have to bench. I don't know what they do. They do. I'm not mentioning names of synagogues, but it's one large Hasidic group that does this. Now, very large, like I think the second largest. Now, the um, 
Anyway, so during the Torah reading, there were these old men talking to each other during Torah reading on Rosh Hashanah. No, no, it was the Shabbos after Rosh Hashanah, before Yom Kippur. So I said to the, these, these elderly rabbi, you know, rabbis, white-bearded rabbis, I said to them, between aliyahs, when you're allowed to speak, I said to them, uh, how do you guys know you talk during Torah reading? And they were like, what do you mean? We were talking during Torah reading. That's how we know. I said, well, yeah, but we just had Rosh Hashanah. I know, I sit at their tables, I'm like, I know last year you talked. But how do you know this year you talk? You get how we're supposed to treat it? Stuff you did until now, you no longer do after Rosh Hashanah, unless you want to outright deny the power. You want to deny the power of what's this gift given to us? Which is where, where Gentiles are at. They don't get to reckon every year. They reckon when they die. They don't get this blank slate on Yom Kippur. They have a life and they reckon when they die. You know why Gentiles have to reckon when they die and we get to reckon every year and have a full re factory reset Yom Kippur? You know why? The reason why is because we have 55,000 laws in, in, you know, in the Shulchan Aruch. So you, we have to reset. Because you can do more wrong in one week than a Gentile could do in their lifetime. Think how much you could do wrong in one Shabbat. Just in one 24-hour period, you can do more wrong than a Gentile could do in their lifetime. So we weigh a lot. By the end of the year, we're, we're heavy, we're laden with trouble. And the planet depends on us. If you know any Kabbalah, the planet's depending on us. And we're all sitting here with all this plaque on our hearts, meaning we've got these, like, what, the, what, our, what our prophets call a foreskin on the heart. It's called Orlas Alev. Just like the foreskin covers up the crown of the circumcision, the crown of a, of a man's. That's the covenant with God. So, too, there's, a, there's an Orla of the heart that covers up the heart. It comes from transgression. Every time we do something wrong, we get another, even inadvertently, even random stuff. Every time we do something wrong, it creates spiritual plaque in our soul's arteries. It's another layer on the heart. This is why it gets very hard to reach out to certain people. It requires being a Rebbe to get, you know, to know how to traverse the fat over someone's heart, you know, traverse that. You know, a lot of people you speak to, they're like, they're like, their eyes glass over when you talk Torah to them. But there's certain people can speak to people who's got who've got serious spiritual plaque, and they they just it just cuts right through. Yeah, that's that takes a certain thing. It's not a certain thing. What it takes is going through your own hell, basically. It takes uh, knowing how to navigate hell. <laughs> when you've navigated hell, you're now a Rebbe. You know, or a female Rebbe, which also exists. in plenty of female Rebbe's out there. But, uh, you have to know the, all the street corners of hell. You know, when you've been through, your own, been through your own hell. Now, Here's the question, the question of the day. Oh, but just one more thing, since I mentioned my Rebbe. He says that if you don't like a certain kind of food, make sure to eat it Rosh Hashanah day. Have it be part of the meal. And eat that food. He says you don't have to enjoy it. I mean, he says you don't even have to swallow it, really. Just taste it to make sure you still hate it. So if you don't like tomatoes, so take a little bite of a tomato and... If you don't like it, spit it out. But don't say you hate tomatoes. Don't say you're bad at names. Don't say you're shy or lazy. Don't say that after Rosh Hashanah. We'll see how shy or lazy you are, you know, as the year goes on. But don't start saying stuff that you don't know is true yet. And that's the way you treat it. That's the way you treat Rosh Hashanah. But here's the big question, which I've taken absolutely forever to get to. And I apologize. Here's the big question. The big question is, why is Yom Kippur after Rosh Hashanah? It's the famous question. Why are you starting a brand new year in soiled garments? 
You got all of last year's stuff on you. And here you're having this total flip over renewal, which I just spent way too long embellishing on. You have this total flip over world hitting you on Rosh Hashanah, and we're all walking in there covered in mud from a year of like, God knows what. Like, why did God, and, and we didn't put in this order, like most stuff we can blame the rabbis. Here, you know, you can't blame the rabbis for this one. It says very clearly, Rosh Hashanah is the first day of the seventh month, and Yom Kippur is the tenth day of the seventh month. So it's like, God set it up this way. We deal with our garbage after Rosh Hashanah, not before. It doesn't make any sense. Which brings us back to the first story I told about the party at Bobby's house. Is that if, if you walked up to Bobby in the second week of parties, if you walked up to Bobby and said, hey, what's gone wrong in the house so far? What would Bobby say? I have no idea. We decided we're going to check on Sunday, the last week before my parents come home. There's no way to really take inventory until you've gotten clarity. And there's something about this in general, because everything in physical world is expansion and contraction, which is masculine and feminine. Everything in the physical world and the spiritual world is just expansion and contraction, expansion. Like water's an expander, cups. Cups are contractors, thankfully, because it'd be really hard to drink this water otherwise. Everything in the physical world is expansion and contraction, male and female, expansion and contraction. That's all there is. When I say male and female, I'm not talking about human male and female, because we possess both more than any other species. We are, we are really almost split down the middle, you could say. Meaning, anatomically, you are male or female. But, but uh, in being, like, like some people's female side is way more developed than their males. <laughs> and some people's males are way more developed than their females. So it's like, we're like really, in a way, every human being is a hermaphrodite. And, which is kind of cool, because Adam was male and female. You know, he had those both going on. She, he, she had those. Now, the... Um, You're expanding out into a clarity. But whenever you expand out into a clarity, you always contract back into self. You got that? This is a spiritual reality. Anyone read the book Siddhartha? Siddhartha. Right? That was what it was all about. <clears throat> so you expand, we expand out into clarity. But you always just kind of collapse back into, well, where have I been? A woman who makes a mistake and leaves his her husband hanging, you know, because she got a phone call when she was parking the car, and he's sitting in a cafe for a half hour until he finally gives up and leaves. So she'll ha she's going to have to expand into clarity of who her husband is for her. And when she expands into that clarity, she will contract back to a new place of growth of who she is in the relationship. We always expand into something and then contract. Rosh Hashanah is the expansion into God as really be, having full dominion of this place. But how can you get that expanded conception, concepts, how can you expand into that without contracting back into where have I been? So God represents the dress shoes in the foyer on Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah represents mom and dad came home early and suddenly I've got full recall of where have I been? And it's only with that kind of clarity can you really recall where you've been to take an accounting of the, of the, the accounting of the, the magnitude of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur requires Rosh Hashanah. And it's not so much because it's better order, it's a worse order. It'd be better to have Yom Kippur than Rosh Hashanah, but God knows our nature. And the nature of human beings is forgetfulness, thank God. You guys realize, realize forgetting is as important as remembering. <laughs> if you didn't constantly forget, you wouldn't be sitting here right now, you'd be, you'd be locked up somewhere. 
And you'd be right now processing every person you passed on your way through the Jewish quarter. And you did see them. But you forgot them as quickly as you saw them so that you could live your life. Forgetfulness is very handy. It's extremely handy. Extremely important to your sanity. It's just, it's not as important as remembering, but it's almost as important. And we couldn't live without it. But it takes a heavy 48-hour Rosh Hashanah with a shofar blast with this amazing alarm clock, spiritual alarm clock, to wake you up from the sleep of an absolute lack of clarity in a, in a uh, just being lost in every kind of worldview, much of which is so inorganic to the Jewish heart, soul, mind. So much inorganic stuff in us, in us which leads to behavior, because thoughts... Behavior, thoughts, behavior, thoughts, behavior. When when you have a worldview, it's automatically your behavior. And unfortunately for most of us, is that we actually create our worldview based on our behavior. And isn't that what society does? Society just sees what everyone's doing, and then they decide what's right and wrong. Morals are based on behavior, not on anything that's eternal or like you know bigger. And they just say, okay, what are we doing now? We'll call that right and wrong. Whatever we consider wrong now is just what we are not yet willing to do. But as soon as we are willing to do it, we'll move that into the world called right. Well, this is the way we've been living. But we're sliding into home plate, into Rosh Hashanah, where God's Melech, God's the king of the universe, and like all these worldviews we've used to basically make ourselves feel better about our current behavior, we will we we humbly humbly wipe it clean. We take our etch-a-sketch, shape that thing, and forget what we've been drawing, and we and we get back to ourselves. And we, but it comes with recall. Where have you been? And where are you going? What's your life about? It gets pretty scary. Like, you guys are nice and young. You can at least turn on a dime. I know a lot of people who are married with kids who are light years away from where they belong. You still have the chance to make some good choices. But you're also in a very dangerous place. You're, you're in danger. You are hanging precariously over a great, giant precipice. Because most people your age make the, all their biggest mistakes. And spend the rest of their lives licking their wounds. So... On one hand, you're in good shape. On the other hand, you're in, you're hanging off a cliff. So, I bless everybody to use this Rosh Hashanah as their first and most important. Amen. Shalom. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.